You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Well, as we know, Galway has won the O'Duffy Cup for the second time in three years after a great camogie victory over Cork yesterday. And we'll talk to Captain Sarah Durvin in just a moment. But Mike McCartney got the view in Kinnegad of some of the jubilant Galway supporters on their way home from Coke Park last night. It was very exciting, so it was. We had a great time and uh, Galway were outstanding and Cork really did give it to us, but we, we, we came out the winners in the end. Oh, it was a great game today. Galway did really well. So, as a Galway person, in a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? Oh, 10 out of 10, of course. <laughs> uh, it was excellent, excellent. Uh, Galway was the better from the start, so they, were, uh, they deserved to win it. It was a good Cork team. Did you think that at any stage that Galway had the game lost? Uh, the goal was frightening, but Cork got. But Galway came back and just went on ahead and that was it. Your cousin was playing for Galway today. Tell us about her. Ah, Neve needs to be cousin. She lives up the road from me and known her for years. Grew up with her. It was a great win for them today. That's Neve Kilkenny, of course. Kilkenny. What a game she had. Yeah, brilliant game. Two points she got. Got them going again. How excited are you after this? That was a good win for them. There'll be a few celebrations, I think, had now around the local village in the next few days. So, it's a good day out, anyway. So, have you any message for the people in Galway? Galway captain Sarah Durvin, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, how are you? They are all delighted, 10 out of 10 they're saying, for you it must be nearly 20 out of 10. Yeah, it's um, unbelievable, Uh, such a feeling, Um, it's just unreal, Um, so delighted um, to be on the right side of it and I'm delighted the game was brilliant and um, every single one of the girls, you know, died with their boots on last uh, yesterday evening and just to be on the right side of it is just it's just unreal it's an incredible achievement it's two victories in three years and uh, you know it's been said of you in, in in reports this morning that you know two victories not just a good team here but a great team yeah like we we always knew we are a good we were a good team like um Joe, you know, um, I suppose last year's defeat was hard, but you know our goal this year was to get back to the All Ireland and um, see take it from there, and that's what we did. You know, we kind of grew from every game and took the positives, and you know tried to improve as much as we could. And like you know, we knew we had a huge battle out in front of us yesterday, and mm. we had to hit the ground running. And look, thankfully, we did. You did, and Cork put the frighteners on you 11 minutes from the end. Cahal Murray himself saying, you know, a, a, a bit of a killer blow at that stage. But you held firm. Uh, had, you, had you prepared for that, Sarah? Had you considered that that might happen? Uh, yeah, like uh, you have to, I suppose, consider every team is going to get their purple patch at some stage. And it's how you react to their purple patches, which will literally define if you win or lose. And um, look, the goal was a, a killer, but we responded so well. I think the girls just, you know, we all just really dug deep and kind of said that this wasn't going to happen today. And, you know, thankfully, Eilish Riley popped up and gave a lovely ball to Siobhan McGrath, who just tapped it in the net. And, you know, we, we grew into the game more so, I thought, at that stage, which shows huge character mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the team. You know, this year there's been there's been a fantastic concentration on women's achievements in sport, uh, whether that's the football or in golf or in horse racing uh, or, or in or in boxing, uh, and and now camogie. Do you think uh, that that 
women's sport has stepped up a level or do you think that that there's more focus and more attention being paid it was always there it was there to be seen yeah like i i believe it was always there and there to be seen um as you said um obviously i'd love to see more like um I suppose more supporters um you know more people at games and, and and i suppose a little bit more coverage but like it is there like like there's fantastic athletes out there as you said in in boxing in rugby and you know and and for women to get that platform mm -hmm. and to showcase their ability is huge and you know it just goes like to show you like that game yesterday was mm -hmm. a brilliant game of camogie and um you know we are at, at an elite level I, 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 from, from a spectator point of view, a, a, a great game. Look, it's early days, you're still celebrating, but have you three in a row in your sights? Well, we haven't really talked about that now. Um, I suppose we're just kind of enjoying today, um, enjoyed last night, and we're going back to our clubs now next week, and, you know, we take a bit of time off and kind of reset the, okay. the body and reset the mind, and when January comes and Carl comes knocking, I, I, I'm sure that'll be the focus. <laughs> you won't be found wanting. Well, Sarah, <laughs> to you and to the Galway team, the victorious Galway team, congratulations on your achievement. Now, the government won the confidence uh, vote in the Doyle last night by a comfortable 92 votes to 59. But it was a bitter debate that cost the government the loss of one TD when Mark McSharry quit Fianna Fáil and voted against the motion. So, is this the end of Saponegate? Can the government now move on? We'll have more on that after we hear this clip from the Minister at the centre of what's been the big political row this summer, Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney. Sinn Féin tonight is not attempting to hold the government or me to account or even to establish truth. Mary Lou Macdonald is not trying to get answers in this debate or achieve anything positive as, regard, as regards what really happened here and how we can improve things for the future. This is a political tactic to try and extend a political controversy and to reinforce a false narrative of cronyism to damage relations in this government. Sinn Féin are doing what they do so often, north and south, stoking tension with an exaggerated narrative in an effort to create anger, resentment and division, not just in this House or in government, but across society more generally. Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney speaking in that confidence motion debate last night. Our political correspondent Paul Cunningham is with us. That question that Simon Coveney asked there, are relations damaged in this government as a result of this vote which the government won? I'd say you could probably put it this way, bruised. I mean, this has been a difficult um, few days, if not a few weeks, and it's also going to have some long-term um, damage for Fianna Fáil. They've lost a TD, um, the Sligo Leitrim, South Donegal, North Roscommon TD, Mark McSharry, has gone overboard and has left, and the number of TDs that they can call on now has gone from 37 to 36. They're on the same number as Sinn Féin. It's also damaging for um, the coalition government insofar as they've gone down uh, the gap between the government and the opposition has narrowed um, to 82 to 77. Um, in, there's been miles of newspaper coverage about the difficulties within government. We've had weeks of apologies from senior ministers. And if you put all that together, that has been disruptive and it's also got uh, damage that's going to linger. 
There was also an allegation during the debate. We'll play the clip now uh, before we talk about it. And this was from the Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy. And it related to the original leak from Cabinet. Uh, and this was a leak from Cabinet uh, that Catherine Zappone was being appointed uh, as an envoy by the government. Uh, a leak which appeared before the Cabinet meeting itself had concluded. Here's what Matt Carthy said under Doyle Privilege yesterday evening. Rather than dealing with the debacle, Fina Gale were running a sting operation to expose that Simon Harris had leaked the appointment from the Cabinet meeting, because that is how business is done. Appointments to public bodies right up to the Supreme Court are decided not by what you know, but who you know. A flavour of what was uh, said by uh, Matt Carthy from Sinn Féin in the Doyle yesterday evening. A spokesman, by the way, for Simon Harris saying later that this was a misuse of Doyle privilege and was untrue. Uh, Will there be more questions about this, Paul? I think it's undoubtedly true that there are going to be more questions on this. The question of who leaks from Cabinet has been uh, ongoing since the, that actual Cabinet meeting. Um, I think that the denial from Minister Harris was clear, but I don't think it's going to be the end of it. I think this is something which is going to run and run. When um, Matt Carty made that comment in the Doyle, in what was a bad-tempered affair at times, and the cameras looked across at the Thornish Leo of Radcar, who shook his head slowly but intensely when those um, allegations were made and as you say Minister Harris has said it's simply untrue but it just is indicative of a, a long-running um, chaotic um, crisis for the coalition government which has ended mostly um, due to the significant and handsome victory that the coalition won with the help of many independent TDs but it's going to linger. In a way, this was, of course, back to Leinster House, the start of the new Doyle term, the return to uh, something of politics as normal. And Sinn Féin setting the tone for a term ahead, Paul, of no holds barred opposition while the government just has to sort out the budget, health and housing? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. Um, there is uh, an approach being taken by Sinn Féin because they had an option. Um, they had the option not to go on a no-confidence motion in Simon Coveney um, and leave the door open to maybe using that particular device um, later on over other issues. But instead, on the very first day of the Doyle's return, they were sending out a signal that they were going to go after the coalition government and they were going to make a point of um, attacking someone, in political terms, um, attacking Simon Coveney, someone who has been a a particularly strong performer for the government, that sort of authoritative, steady-hand individual who is leading leading the country through Brexit and they've gone after him and it certainly has had um, a a damaging effect on it. And I think Sinn Féin is sending out a signal not just about what they felt about this particular crisis but also an intention about how they're going to conduct business over the coming weeks and there are plenty of issues um, which are going to prove difficult for the government. You put your finger on the issue of a very very difficult budget as we try and wind down and um, those huge supports those huge COVID supports um, but they also have major other issues, controversial issues, things like maybe the Canadian EU trade deal known as CETA which is still in um, uh, an Oireachtas committee but will come back to a vote and it's something which will focus attention not on Fianna Fáil but on the Green Party and whether um, all of their TDs are going to back any deal so um, certainly you get a flavour of how it's going to be over the coming months. Yes, climate as well will be one of the challenges as the government draws up its climate budget and starts to specify uh, that we put our money where our mouth is, I suppose, on meeting the targets that have been set. So plenty of challenges ahead. Paul Cunningham, political correspondent. Thank you very much indeed. 
Fine Gael's Simon Harris says he is considering very strongly making a complaint against Sinn Féin's Matt Carty for what he says was a misuse of Dáil privilege. On Wednesday, the Sinn Féin TD accused the Minister for Further and Higher Education under Dáil privilege of leaking information from Cabinet over the proposed appointment of a former minister, Catherine Zappone, as an envoy to the UN, a job she later declined, and the handling of which led to this week's dull confidence motion in the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney. Our reporter Amy Nereida got reaction to Mart- Matt Carty's comments from Martin Kenny, the party's spokesperson for justice and TD for the Sligo Leitrim constituency. Well, I think Matt made his comments, and they stand for themselves. Uh, the situation here is that Every cabinet meeting seems to be leaked before it's over, and that's an issue that the Taoiseach needs to deal with and the government needs to deal with. Uh, People in cabinet have the most trusted position in the land, and they need to have respect for that trust, and they need to maintain cabinet confidentiality, and it's it's very unfortunate that's not happening, and the Taoiseach really needs to deal with this situation. Really, it's, it's an issue for the government to sort out. I mean, speaking to journalists around Leinster House, uh, they're, they're all telling me that, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff being leaked from both cabinet and parliamentary party meetings, etc. And it's, it's an ongoing issue that I think, as I say, the government needs to deal with. Everyone knows about it. Should Matt Carthy have told Mary Lou MacDonald in advance of making those comments? I don't know. I don't know what Matt Carthy told anybody. But, I mean, it's, it's there now. It's in the public domain. It's, it's up to, as I said, the government to deal with this situation. And, and the problem here isn't what Matt Carthy said or didn't say. The problem here is that uh, cabinet confidentiality is breached continually. Could you foresee him withdrawing the remarks? I don't know. I doubt it very much. That's Sinn Féin TD Martin Kenny with our reporter Amy Nereida. For more on cabinet confidentiality and privilege, let's talk now with Dr Laura Cahillan, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Limerick. Uh, Dr Cahillan, good morning. Let's start with the accusation of leaking information from Cabinet. Is it a serious accusation and why? It is a serious accusation because it is actually an important uh, constitutional principle that um, the discussions at Cabinet would be kept um, confidential and there are also references to it in the Official Secrets Act and the Ministers and Secretaries Act Um, but I suppose for a number of years um, Cabinets have taken a sort of an informal approach to this and we know that for years that Cabinets have leaked various information but I suppose the difference is that normally when this would have have happened in the past it would have been perhaps not officially sanctioned maybe but it would have been something that was a strategic move and you know you often see it happening before budgets for example that there's a piece of information leaked and the idea is that you see what the public reaction is whereas in more recent years we're seeing more and more leaking going on and the leaks aren't always of benefit necessarily to the cabinet which is something that is worrying and the other worrying thing is that if we see this erosion of cabinet confidentiality we will also then begin to see the erosion of another uh, important principle which is that of collective responsibility and that's the idea that the cabinet all stands together as a as a unique whole institution and that's very important for the stability of government because when that wears away then government becomes very unstable. Have people been caught breaking cabinet confidentiality and what happens to them? Well, it's not something that you see very often in terms of somebody being investigated for cabinet a breach of cabinet confidentiality. And I'm not sure I've ever come across um, 
an instance of somebody being punished uh, for cabinet confidentiality in particular but I mean it is something that could be followed up on if you know if the Taoiseach does intend to carry out this investigation and look into um, the alleged leaks then there could be criminal consequences. Cabinet confidentiality it's not absolute there was a referendum on this in the in the 1990s Yes, um, arising out of um, the Beef Tribunal inquiry and there are um, exceptions to the rule but those exceptions have to go uh, tr- through the courts so it's it's not something that um, a minister can just take it upon themselves and decide that this is an issue that they are simply going to leak. How does dull privilege work? Uh, Arata's privilege is another very important constitutional um, privilege so TDs and senators are given special immunities and privileges by the constitution in order to enable them to properly do their job and the idea is that a member of the house can't be the subject of uh, court action because of anything that they say in the house and the reason for this is that otherwise they'd be constrained by issues such as fear of defamation proceedings for example and they wouldn't be able to speak freely in the house. Now we also have um, some standing orders on this and in particular one standing order which was brought in a couple of years ago and it prohibits a member from making an utterance which is in the nature of being defamatory. Now again there is um, an exception that it allows a person to make such an utterance if they feel it might be in the public interest to do so but in that case they have to give prior notice to the Ceann and it seems that this course of action was not pursued by Deputy Carthy. But if a complaint then is made that uh, an utterance has been made and it is in the nature of being defamatory, then the Committee on Procedure and Privileges can look at this. They can ask whether or not the member acted in a responsible manner, acted in good faith and tried to ensure as far as possible that the information was soundly based. But if they find that an abuse of privilege has occurred, then there are a number of consequences. So the the deputy can be reprimanded, and they can be suspended from the House and also the, the dull record can be rebalanced in order to include a statement of the, the supposed uh, defamed party. Just tell us more about what happens if you're found to have misused privilege and, and instances of that. Tell us what sanctions have, have been imposed. Um, well, it, again, it is unusual to, to, to find a person is actually sanctioned for this. There have been a number of occasions where there's been investigations into um, potential breaches of Overactus um, er, er, privilege. And I think the Thornish last night in his speech referred to an incident a couple of years ago where um, Deputy Mary Lou MacDonald had used Overactus privilege in order to name a number of individuals Uh, former politicians um, and there was allegations of of tax evasion Um, and in that situation um, Deputy MacDonald was censored for improper use of of the the privilege. Um, So in this occasion if Deputy Harris or Minister Harris proceeds with a complaint and if the committee decides that what occurred has actually been an abuse of the privilege then they can suspend uh, Deputy Carthy from the House for a period of time. Dr. Laura Cahlan, thank you very much for speaking to us. Laura Cahlan is a senior lecturer in law at the University of Limerick. The EU Court of Justice in Luxembourg will begin hearing arguments today, which could have significant implications for one of the most notorious murders here. Our legal affairs correspondent Orla O'Donnell joins us now. Orla, will you tell us the background to the hearing? 
Uh, yes, Audrey, Graham Dwyer was convicted in 2015 of the murder of Elaine O'Hara in August 2012. Now, her remains were discovered a year after she went missing. Um, the trial of Graham Dwyer, an architect who had appeared to be a normal family man, attracted huge attention, people may remember. Uh, the details revealed of Dwyer's secret life and his relationship with Elaine O'Hara uh, were disturbing and shocking, uh, and the trial received almost unprecedented publicity. In the trial, evidence from ele- electronic sources was crucial Um, The prosecution used evidence they found on hard drives, on mobile phones, on computers, and they also made extensive use of what's called mobile phone metadata. Now, this is data that the Gardaí are able to obtain from mobile phone service providers, and it gives them a picture of where a person's phone is at any given time, where the phone is when calls and texts are made and received. It doesn't contain the actual content of these texts and calls, but it allows for a pretty full picture of a person's movements if they have that phone with them. Uh, Graham Dwyer and his legal team were obviously aware of how important this evidence was to the case. So before the criminal trial even got underway, they had lodged a legal challenge to the way the data was retained and accessed. And the problem for the state is that the legislation underpinning this regime had been introduced in 2011 and that was in response to an EU directive but that directive was later found in 2014 to be invalid by the Court of Justice of the EU. Uh, In 2018 the High Court upheld Dwyer's challenge and the judge found the legislation uh, was uh, it breached EU law it was general and indiscriminate and it lacked any independent oversight. The state appealed that and the matter then went to the Supreme Court. So the issues being discussed at the hearing in Luxembourg what are they Orla? Yes, these issues will eventually go back to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court, um, when they gave their decision, uh, the Chief Justice Frank Clark expressed the court's majority view on these issues, and he said it was the court's view that a, a system of universal limited retention of data wasn't necessarily incompatible with EU law, but the problem was the Irish system for accessing it was not robust enough. Basically, there's no independent person to adjudicate on requests by Gardaí for access to this data. Uh, He also referred another question about whether or not, if the court ruled that this legislation was invalid, should it be a retrospective finding? The Supreme Court's view was that it should not. It should only apply from the date of the judgment. Now, that's a question for the Court of Justice of the EU. Uh, Mr. Justice Clark said these matters involved uh, issues of EU law and the answers were not clear and that's why the referral was made. So the case is going to come before a sitting of the Grand Chamber of the Court in Luxembourg this morning. There'll be 15 judges and an Advocate General in court and that Advocate General gives independent advice to the court uh, and writes an opinion for the court but it's a non-binding opinion. Uh, It's also being heard along with a referral from the German courts in relation to a case raising similar issues uh, and the court is expected to hear submissions from other member states. Uh, The Attorney General Paul Gallagher is leading the state's team along with senior counsel Sean Gearan who led the prosecution of Graham Dwyer. They're going to make their submissions remotely from Dublin. Uh, Dwyer is going to be represented by his defence team at his original trial, uh, senior counsels Remy Farrell and Ronan Kennedy and they will be in Luxembourg. Okay, so what happens next then? Well, the hearing is expected, we think, to last today. Um, and then it's expected the Advocate General will finalise his opinion, his or her opinion. Um, that is non-binding uh, and should come within a few months. And uh, what I'm told is that we should get a decision from the court a few months after that. Now, that timeline may be clarified further in court this morning. But realistically, it's probably going to be early next year before there is a decision. Um, it has implications for EU member states um, and for Graham Dwyer's appeal against his conviction, which is his main aim in this, these whole proceedings. Or lo- O'Donnell, thank you very much, our legal affairs correspondent. 
And returning to events now in the UK and the US and lawyers for Britain's Prince Andrew have argued in a New York court that allegations of sexual assault against the Queen's second son are baseless and non-viable. In a short pre-trial hearing, the Prince's lawyers also alleged he'd not been properly served with documents relating to the Virginia roberts Jufra lawsuit and he may have the protection of a secret settlement agreement. For more, I'm joined by New York-based journalist Harriet Alexander. This, Harriet, was a a very short technical hearing. But what did we learn about the direction of Prince Andrew's defence in these civil proceedings? So, yes, as, as you say, it was over pretty quickly. Um, and this happened uh, yesterday afternoon, early evening. Uh, and essentially, hit Prince Andrew's lawyers are arguing uh, on two counts. They are arguing first uh, that he hasn't been properly served with these documents, that, that when they were handed to uh, a policeman who was, who was guarding uh, the residence in Windsor, that this didn't count as them actually being properly served to the prince uh, at the end of last month. And on the second argument, they're essentially saying that there is no merit to the case um, and that they don't want to even have to deal with it. Is it likely that that first argument about the serving of documents uh, through a a security or, or police officer, that that would fly with the judge? Well, the judge, uh, Lewis Kaplan, he seemed pretty sceptical of that argument. Um, He said, you know, that we should cut out the technicalities. Um, He seemed not to have a lot of patience for the argument from Prince Andrew's lawyers um, that it hadn't all been done. Uh, And he reminded Prince Andrew's lawyers, who who kept on referencing the Hague Convention uh, about how documents should be served, he reminded them that that convention was actually optional. So he has given them two weeks to try again to serve uh, Andrew with the documents in another way, but he certainly indicated that uh, even if even if it's not been done to the letter, he will likely proceed because he said it was wasting everybody's time. And given Harriet that we've now had these pre pretrial applications in court, does that establish that the Prince Andrew is going to meet this civil action that uh, he might travel to the United States, appear in person, uh, mm. uh, and defend his name? No, that looks incredibly unlikely, actually. I mean, most people believe that he'd be very, very unwise to travel to the US um, because he could be arrested potentially uh, as soon as he sets foot on US soil. Um, And also in the civil case, they actually don't have any way of forcing him to engage, which is really interesting. They can proceed without him. Um, And they could uh, could indeed decide that even though he's not participating, they could decide to issue him with a fine that could stretch into the tens of millions. Uh, But then there is a big question of how they would ever make him pay, seeing as he doesn't have assets in the US. Um, so it's 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 going to be an interesting one for the legal minds to mull over. Mm, he's now hired, we're told, a, a Hollywood lawyer, a, a well-known Hollywood lawyer. And, and this argument about the protection of a secret settlement agreement, what do you know? Yes. So on, on the lawyer, he's hired somebody. He hired him only, it was announced only four hours before the hearing yesterday. So it took everyone a little bit by surprise. Uh, his name is Andrew Brettler and he has represented people who've been accused of sex offences such as Charlie Sheen, uh, Bill Cosby, uh, the film director, Brian Singer. Um, so he is now going to be representing uh, Andrew in the US. Um, and, and it's going to be going on, we believe, for another two weeks. And Prince Andrew, of course, uh, has denied all and any wrongdoing and even ever meeting uh, Virginia Jufra. 
He did, he did. If you remember, he did that disastrous and, and very ill-advised Newsnight interview uh, where he said he definitely didn't meet her that evening because he was with his daughter in Pizza Express. Um, and what I think also is worth stressing is that is that Andrew has has said through his lawyer, Vanny said in the interview, that he would, was always going to be cooperating with the US officials and would do anything that they requested. And yet, time after time, the US authorities are saying that they've had zero cooperation. Uh, that was the previous uh, district attorney for, for Manhattan. He said they've had no help at all. And so it's uh, quite a contradictory picture emerging. Harriet Alexander in New York, thank you very much indeed for joining us. 37 years after he was found on a beach in County Kerry, the remains of a baby boy have been exhumed to try and find out what happened to him. Known only as Baby John, his body had 28 stab wounds to the chest when he was found in 1984. The original investigation into the baby's death and the subsequent discovery of the body of a second baby on a farm near Abbey Dorney outside Tralee in County Kerry led Gardaí to charge an innocent woman, Joanne Hayes, with the murder of baby John. Those charges were later dropped. Gardaí apologised in 2018. Simon Bruder is correspondent for The Kerryman and is with us now. Simon, good morning. Good morning. Remind us of baby John's story. Well, I mean, you uh, laid it out quite clearly there. This um, entire case dates back to early or mid-April 1984 and the discovery of this um, poor child on the beach down at White Strand in Carrasavine. The subsequent investigation, um, which was uh, questionable, and the tribunal that led to what people at the time now would probably say was the vilification of Joanne Hayes rather than an investigation into the guard's handling of the case. And obviously it's been an issue that's been rumbling on here for decades, uh, eventually leading to the Garda and State apology and the settlement with the Hayes family in, in January 2018. What happened yesterday, Simon? Uh, well, yesterday was quite unusual. Um, <clears throat> at first light yesterday, a team from Killarney Garda Station and the forensic labs went to the graveyard in Carisavine and the child's remains were, remo- were exhumed and... Um, brought to University Hospital Kerry for um, what we understand. The Gardaí have not been very specific about the reasoning, but we understand it's uh, for DNA sampling. Now, while there was DNA samples taken from baby John during the course of the original investigation, um, the Garda sources are telling us that basically technological advances in DNA profiling led them to believe that they could probably get a better quality sample this time, and that appears to be what led to the exhumation yesterday. So that's why it happened yesterday, and the baby's remains have been returned now, is that right? They were um, <clears throat> reinterred quite early yesterday, actually. In fact, this all happened very quickly. Um, as I say, the exhumation happened um, at the first light yesterday, so around this time yesterday morning, um, and the child's remains were taken to UHK. Now, we understand that the child was reinterred early yesterday afternoon, possibly by about one o'clock, so this was a quite a a rapid operation. It was also done extremely discreetly. What's going to happen now? Um, well, our understanding of it is based on the DNA samples. The cold case investigation was launched in um, on January 18th, the same day that the Garda apology was made to the Hayes family. And since then, we know that hundreds of state- new statements have been taken in the Carisavine, Valencia, and the wider South Kerry area. Um, numerous leads that were never actually originally followed up in the first investigation after the inquiry 
the focus of the inquiry moved to the Trillian North Kerry area. Those leads are being followed up and um, the numerous DNA samples have also been taken from people in the area. Um, now we understand we never got an exact figure for those, but we understand the DNA samples are in the high double digits. Um, so I would assume, obviously, that the new samples will now be correlated with those um, in the hope of maybe getting a new um, lead in the case. Are Gardaí relying on technological advances to solve this case, or are they still hoping that somebody will come forward with information that they haven't had before? That has always been the case since the new investigation was launched. Um, the lead in the investigation, Flora Murphy, said from the get-go and has always said and said again yesterday that they are sure that somebody in the vicinity has some information on this that maybe at the time they weren't willing to share for any variety of reasons that they may now be willing to come forward with. That appeal was reiterated yesterday and it will, I'm sure, continue to be reiterated as this continues. It's a very bizarre, st- uh, it's a very sad story. It had very bizarre consequences. And here we are talking about it almost 40 years later. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, a lot of people would see it as a black mark on Kerry, and people in South Kerry might feel that way a little bit about it as well. It's a black mark on Ireland, the state of the judiciary, how the country was run 40 years ago. And it is honestly remarkable that 40 years on we're still talking about this. I've been a correspondent with the Kerryman for close on 20 years now, and one of the very first cases I, I covered was the vandalism of the child's baby John's grave back in 2004. This is a story that has never gone away and looks unlikely to for some time. Simon, thank you for speaking to us. That's Simon Bruder, correspondent for the Kerryman. Now abroad, and one month after their takeover in Afghanistan, reports have emerged of fights between different factions of the Taliban, while the plight of the people there worsens daily. Channel 4 News International Editor Lindsay Hilsom is in Afghanistan and she's been telling me about the power struggle that's dividing the Taliban. Well, the Deputy Prime Minister Baradar, he was one of those who was in the negotiations with the Americans, which were held in Doha over the last couple of years. So he is seen very much as a, as a, a man who was favoured by Qatar. Qatar is really a key country here in Afghanistan. And the Haqqanis, well, the They are regarded by the Americans and the British and the EU and the UN as a terror network. And uh, they are really seen as the hard line. Yet several of their their people are in very senior positions. Sirajuddin Haqqani, who has a $10 million bounty on his head from the Americans. He's the interior minister. His uncle, who I met the other day, is a minister for refugees, Khalil Haqqani. He has a $5 million bounty on his head. And they are seen as really the hardliners as opposed to the pragmatists led by Baradar. And at the moment, it does appear that the hardliners seem to be in the ascendant. But there's lots of arguments going on. And really the problem with this is as as these people squabble, what about Afghanistan? Winning a war is one thing. Governing is quite another. The economy has ground to a halt. There's tremendous unemployment. There's drought. And people are heading towards a really terrible humanitarian disaster, according to the United Nations. And for women in Afghanistan, one month after the Taliban have taken over, um, the situation appears to be getting worse by the day. You interviewed a former policewoman who's in hiding. Yes, look, she is somebody, Fatima Ahmadi, who's in a very bleak 
position. She was already in trouble. She was one of those who Western countries encouraged to enter the security services. Now, women weren't normally in the security services in Afghanistan, but the West spent about $100 million on promoting women in the security services, saying that they should be there um, in the police and other forces. And she was one of the, those who took up that challenge. And she really enjoyed that job. Then she had problems. There was sexual harassment by her bosses, and she went public about that, which was a very brave thing to do. But the result of that was that her family then disowned her. She was already divorced because she'd been married, forced marriage at the age of 12. You see all the problems that women in Afghanistan had even before the Taliban. Now you have the Taliban, and she is living in hiding because... The Taliban don't think that women should be in the police force. And also many of the criminals who these police women caught are now on the loose because the Taliban let them out of prison. So she is really destitute. And she is one of many women who are in a totally tragic and, and appalling situation. I was in Bamiyan yesterday, which is a Hazara area. The Hazara are a Shia group and um, they never cover their faces the women they only cover their hair they're they're really amongst those who have benefited most from the last 20 years of a more liberal regime i was talking to a, a women's rights activist and a journalist and they were well what are we going to to do now you know the taliban won't let us work they won't let us go out in fact they haven't said that women can't work or go out but what they have done is instill this terror into women. So some women are still going to work and others are just too terrified. And then another woman I know who was a member of parliament, 20 Taliban gunmen turned up at her office and demanded to see her. Well, she fled the country and who can blame her? And some, I suppose, small beacon of hope, uh, the Afghanistan National Girls Women football team, those who made it across the border into Pakistan uh, and managed to make it to freedom. Yes. Look, every woman who makes it to freedom or every person who is under threat who makes it to freedom, that's an individual success. But everyone is a tragedy for this country because the entire middle class is trying to get out as far as I can see. Anybody who has any competence in government is trying to get out. Now, the last government was very corrupt, but they did have technocrats and they did have people who to some extent knew how to run things. What you have with these mullahs now squabbling in the presidential palace about who gets the spoils, they have no competence at all. And so what is going to happen? How are they going to run a government? That's much more difficult than winning a war. And the result of their inability so far, and as far as I can see into the future, to actually run anything, the result of that is going to be tremendous hardship. The banks are still not fully open. People are only allowed to take out a certain amount of money a week. Many people are selling all their belongings because they have no means of income. The the civil servants haven't been paid, in certainly in the last month. And all the other parts of the economy, they're just juddering to a halt. And how you actually get that up and running, I don't think the Taliban and the ministers know how to do that. And those technocrats, who are the ones who would know how to do it, they've either fled or they're trying to flee. Lindsay Hilsom, Channel 4 News International Editor on those later de- latest developments in Afghanistan. 
Now let's talk to Adrian Weckler, Technology Editor at the Irish and Sunday Independent. Adrian, good morning. I'm going to ask, ask you to translate for me what this all means because Apple has issued a software patch to block so-called zero-click spyware that could infect iPhones and iPads. How worried should I be? You should be very worried general, Mary. So this is a very serious vulnerability that affects all iPhones and Macs and Apple Watches. And essentially what it lets a hacker do is to get into your iPhone, let's say, to activate the camera, activate the microphone, record calls, messages, get into all of your data, even encrypted data. And it does so in a way um, that where you don't have to tap on a message or click on an email, usually with this kind of spyware or uh, or malware, you usually have to do something. You don't with this particular exploit. Apple has discovered that this has been in the wild for at least six months. It was a security company that discovered it. And now Apple has issued some emergency patches and fixes uh, for anybody who has an iPhone or a Mac. So, so let me be clear on this. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to click on any link or any file. And my phone or my device uh, could be invaded. That's absolutely correct. And they could then use my phone to access my apps. They could use my phone uh, to send message, encrypted messages even in my name. They can they pretty much take over your phone and mirror it and you would never know. Now, um, this is a, a vulnerability, a hack that's been developed by an Israeli company, uh, NSO. They've been in the, the news before and typically they sell this hack this software to governments usually for an awful lot of money. They claim that they vet their government list. It's um, it's used, they say, to fight things like terrorism. The problem is once you create a tool like that, uh, it gets out in the wild. And in general, one of the reasons we're worried is, is that iPhones were supposed to be more secure than the rest anyway. So it is, it is a big cause for concern. To continue the analogy, how do we capture it and take it out of the wild? If you have an iPhone or even a Mac or an Apple Watch, you will notice that it is telling you this morning that it has a new update. If it's not telling you that, you can check on your iPhone by going into the settings and then general and then software update. You will see it there. Download it. Download it. And that's what people need to do. All right, Adrian, and, and, and that will solve it. And that is being put out by Apple and that is how they're going to secure devices. Yes, absolutely correct. It's it's very important that people do this. There's no suggestion that there are, you know, thousands or millions of criminals yet using this. But the fact that it exists, the fact that it is a known vulnerability now um, that Apple had to patch means that if you don't update your iPhone, the longer you leave it, the more your iPhone could be at risk. Adrian Weckler, thank you for explaining all of that to us this morning. Geoffrey Donaldson, uh, leader of the DUP, good morning. Why would the President of Ireland be expected to attend a ceremony to mark to commemorate the partition of his country? Well, first of all, the, um, the service is called by the Formian churches. That in itself is an act of reconciliation, I think, when you consider um, our history and our past. It is to mark the centenary of Northern Ireland, which of course means also that uh, 100 years ago partition took place. It's not about commemorating, it's not about celebrating, it's simply about marking um, uh, 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 what is um, a key part of our shared history, a moment in history that has shaped 
um, this island, both parts of this island, for the last 100 years. And you know, we either bury our head in the sand and pretend that didn't happen, or we recognize the reality of where we are today. And um, in the context of this service led by the four main churches, we dedicate ourselves to um, build reconciliation and, and we look towards hope as the mark of how we build our relationships going forward. And I think it is highly regrettable that President Higgins um, feels that um, this is something to do with politics rather than people and uh, marking what is an historic moment for all of us. He says the problem was with the title of the event, which it was stated would mark the centenaries of the partition of Ireland and the formation of Northern Ireland. He said the title was politicised and made it inappropriate for him as head of state to attend the event. Well, the event is being, um, the service is being hosted by the four main churches, and I don't see that um, that they would be uh, drawn into politics. Um, it simply reflects the reality of, of what this um moment in our history was about. I know uh, that it is contentious. I understand that there are people on both sides who take a different view. Um, But, you know, if you're going to have reconciliation, surely it is about bringing people together who hold different views. If all we ever do is gather together with those of a like mind, how do you promote reconciliation? I think the churches are right to hold this service. They're right to do the difficult things. Reconciliation is about doing the difficult things. It's about stepping outside your comfort zone. And you know, I think it, um, when you consider um, the enormous steps towards reconciliation that were taken by Her Majesty the Queen when she visited Dublin, and the boundaries that were broken by that visit, the taboos that were uh, taken apart, um, and, and, and the, the healing and reconciliation that arose um, and occurred from that event, I think it is regrettable um, that the head of state of the Republic of Ireland felt, feels that he cannot uh, attend this service because it is not about politics, it's actually about hope and reconciliation. In response to your party's criticism, um, he says, it's a bit much to be frank with you. I've gone up to Northern Ireland to take part in events. There has often not been a great deal of traffic down from the DUP people, DUP people who are criticising me now, he says. And indeed, your own former party leader didn't attend the 1916 commemoration here. Um, well, um, uh, the, uh, with respect, um, the former party leader and First Minister Arlene Foster attended a similar church service in Dublin. Um, to mark the centenary of the Easter Rising. Uh, We're not asking President Higgins, and it's not my invitation, but the churches are not asking President Higgins to attend some kind of reenactment event or some kind of political event. It's a church service. And actually, Arlene Foster attended a church service for a similar purpose in Dublin at the time of the centenary of the Easter Rising. I would also point out, and President Higgins will know this, because he and I attended many events in Dublin and indeed in other parts of the Republic during the World War One centenary. When I chaired the centenary committee in Northern Ireland, I made an, uh, an effort on many occasions to travel to Dublin and other places as part of that, uh, that centenary. And I think we made real progress uh, together in recognising our shared history. Um, and I think it is a retrograde step uh, that we haven't continued with that in, in respect of attendance okay. at this particular service. Are you asking the President to commemorate a centenary of what Unionists stated was its right to create a Protestant state for a Protestant people? When there were pogroms, hundreds died, thousands were forced from their homes and their jobs. 
Are you asking him to commemorate that? Well, you know, I could equally uh, be as pejorative as you have just been and talked about and talk about the Irish Civil War, where Republicans slaughtered each other in their hundreds and thousands. Yes, but we're talking um, about an event and, to mark the centenary of the formation well, of Northern Ireland. Well, I, I'm, I, I'm I'm simply making the point that history is difficult, um, and that what happened in history is difficult but for all of us. And I'm simply saying that if we're going to build a shared future, as we talk about in Northern Ireland, uh, then surely a starting point must be that we recognise our shared history. I'm not asking President Higgins, nor are the four church leaders who are hosting this service, asking President Higgins to do anything other than mark uh, uh, an event, a moment in history that helped to shape and define uh, both parts of this island over the past 100 okay. years. We're not asking President Higgins to become a unionist, We're not asking, but we are asking, and I think we're entitled to ask, since people say uh, that you know we hear a lot of fine okay. words about recognising and respecting unionism, but when it comes to stepping up to the mark on this, I'm afraid that hasn't happened. Geoffrey Donaldson, leader of the DUP, thank you very much for speaking to us. One of the most unusual passengers ever on an Aer Lingus flight will board EI-782 this lunchtime from Dublin to Gran Canaria. Julius Caesar is a 20-kilo loggerhead turtle. He'll have an entire row of seats to himself and he'll have his own personal assistant to ensure a comfortable flight and his safe delivery to his new home in the sun. Portia Sampson is Display's supervisor at Exploris Aquarium in Portaferry and she's been telling me more about JC and how he came into her care. So basically, in 2019, um, a family was walking on the beach in County Donegal and they found a very juvenile uh, loggerhead turtle. Um, he was very cold um, and so they called Explorers Aquarium and we took him in. We basically nursed him back to health um, and he's now gone from 500 grams to over 20 kilos. So he's a big boy now um, and we will be taking him back to the Canaries courtesy of Aer Lingus. So thank you to them. Um, and it's really important that we do this because they are an endangered species. Um, they're very slow um, to get to sexual maturity. Um, ours still isn't there yet, even though he is so big. So it's really important that we put them back out there in the wild um, so that they can continue to grow for future generations. Because um, as I said, their numbers are in decline. And it's a, it's been a long journey to get here. <laughs> and we've still got a little way to go, but hopefully everything goes smoothly today. Um, he's called Julius Caesar. So the little girl that found him gave him the name and we all call him JC for short, um, which sometimes confuses people a little bit because they think he might be called Jesus. But no, it's Julius Caesar. It's a, it's a big name for, for, a, for, for, a, for a now very big turtle, but he was a, a small <laughs> little fellow when he, was, when he was found in Donegal. How unusual is it, Portia, for a loggerhead turtle to wash up on the northwest coast of Ireland? Well, the problem with um, with little um, turtles is they're so small when they're born, um, so it's quite rare to find them washed up, but it does happen um, around around all of the coasts of the UK and Ireland. Um, you do hear reports of them washing up. It's, it's not super common, um, but it happens a couple of times in the year. If there's really poor weather, they can get caught in the wrong, um, wrong current and washed ashore, or they just happen to wander into the Gulf Stream, and because they're so tiny, they just don't have the swimming strength when when they're juvenile um, so they can just get washed ashore and then it's it's just the cold weather as well because they're not used to the, the temperatures around here so they just get completely stunned um, and then they wash up on the beaches. 
You've been his constant companion, really, since since he was washed up. How, how big a job was it, nursing him back to life and enabling him now to grow, thrive and prosper? So in the beginning, the most difficult thing was he was so small and his temperature was so low. So he was at 11 degrees when a turtle we're looking at 19 plus. And that's what I'm going to be monitoring him for today to make sure he stays above that. And so getting his temperature up, you don't want to do it suddenly um, in one big go. So it was over a few days, his temperature was increased. And then the challenge was getting him um, eating. So in the wild, um, you're talking crustaceans, mollusks, um, jellyfish um, and other fish as well. Um, so trying to give him a nice, well-rounded diet that would match what he's having in the wild. So he gets target fed every day. He eats a lot. Um, and we had to make up a special paste for him, which has got calcium, which is really good for his shell um, to make sure it grows nice and strong. Uh, but he did really well, um, Got was eating straight away. Um, so it hasn't been too much of a problem. And then he was just getting a bit big, so we had to move him to a bigger tank. Um, our ocean tank is huge. Um, and then he gets target fed every day, so he comes up he's, uh, and he gets his food. <laughs> he is probably, Portia, the most unusual passenger ever to board flight EI782 from Dublin to Gran Canaria today. He won't be in the, pass- in the hold with the baggage, will he? He'll be sitting beside you uh, up front with all the other passengers. Yes, um, so people are probably going to have quite a shock when they get on the plane. He's got an entire row to himself um, and he's going to be in a crate that fits very snugly in there. He's going to have some wetsuits with some water on them to make sure he doesn't dry out because that's very important. And the main thing of not going in the hold is one, I can monitor him, make sure he's okay. Um, and the other thing is just making sure the temperature is okay because it can get a bit cold in the hold. Um, so making sure he stays above that important 19 degrees um, is what we're kind of aiming for. So it's uh, it was a challenge even getting the crate to fit in the seats, but we've managed to do it. Um, and luckily, he's not any bigger. <laughs> Portia, I imagine you've grown very fond of Julius Caesar over the last couple of years. You'll deliver him to Gran Canaria. What happens then? Yeah, so um, he's definitely probably my favourite animal here, which is why I made sure I was going with him. When he arrives, we've got um, says a vet on the island. His name's Pascal. Um, he's done this so many times with various turtles from all over the world. Um, so he's been fantastic. He's going to make sure that he's there um, and he will take myself and the turtle. Um, he'll take JC to um, a local, it's, it's an animal hospital, um, but they do a lot of work with um, turtles on the island. It's a sanctuary. Um, and then it'll be monitored. He'll be monitored for 24 hours. And then as long as he's eating and swimming fine, then he will get released the next day, um, which is most likely going to be um, off the beach. So members of the public will be able to, to get to see him going back into the waters. And away he goes. That's Portia Sampson accompanying Julius Caesar to Gran Canaria later on this afternoon. And finally this morning, meet Bella, a tiny terrier who has found her forever home after spending six years at the Dogs Trust Rehoming Centre in Finglas in Dublin. We're joined this morning by the Trust's Head of Communications, Kira Byrne. Kira, you're welcome. Tell us about Bella. Why did it take her so long to find an owner? Hi, yeah. Thanks so much for for having me on today. I know Bella. She is so adorable. It's really, really hard to believe, isn't it, that she would take so long to to find adopters. Um, unfortunately, Bella wasn't as straightforward um, as we would have hoped. She was a very, very shy and quiet girl when she arrived with us, and it took a lot. You know, it took a lot of 
uh, patient uh, to slowly build her trust for some of our canine carers, got to know her incredibly well, and then her playful personality side emerged. But unfortunately, it wasn't like that with a lot of people that were coming to see her and visit her, and, and she had a lot of interest. She's, she's tiny, if you probably haven't seen, the, if you haven't seen the pictures in the papers, she's a small little tiny little terrier dog um so you would think you know a dog like that would be you know take to anyone and have a real bubbly little personality as as they as most of them do but she just um it took her along a, a lot longer than than it did does most dogs to to let that little side of her emerge so we did she we, just find it hard to trust people kira she did, yeah. She she found she was very wary of people. She found it really hard to trust people, and you know, as soon as you, you got to know her well, and um, but it did take a long time. As soon as you got to know her well, she did she did come out of it, but it did take her quite a while. And um, you know, we have specialist canine carers and training and behaviour advisors. You know, and we were able to rehabilitate her and 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 do that slowly and patiently with her. But it definitely needed adopters that were experienced, that had a lot of patience, that had a lot of time. Um, and of course, she, it, and it was up to her in the end of the day, if she didn't like you or she didn't take to you, didn't trust you for some reason. And, um, you know, it was very, very difficult to, to break that down. And she found her forever home. And, and how did that happen did. in the sense of how did she react then? What was the breakthrough with the people who she eventually decided to put her trust in? She did. We we really did. We found amazing adopters that spent months and months of getting to know her, and that's what it took. Um, she they came to the centre. They were so patient. They came to the centre for multiple times, and um, she then you know gradually building up her trust, and then eventually, she you know they built up enough trust that she was able to go and visit them. And that happened a few times. You know, it definitely wasn't something that happened overnight. It really did take a lot of a lot of patience, a lot of time, um, and eventually eventually then um, she did take to them it progressed to sleepovers in their house and you know now they are just like peas in a pod they are the perfect perfect people for her um, and she's totally relaxed she's like a new dog you know she really she she's just um, absolutely settling in to her house like you know like nobody else and that's brilliant she, yeah it's we're de- absolutely delighted we couldn't be happier like we we know that there's spe- special people out there for every dog we never give up on them um, and that's just so important for us and this just really highlights that and um, how important exactly it is to, and and we have retweeted um one of your tweets showing pictures of bella and oh she would melt your heart she's absolutely gorgeous and the new owners are very lucky indeed kira lovely to have you on this morning thank you very much indeed kira byrne from the dogs trusted you've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's morning ireland